All right, Hi-Fi Nation for Slate Plus. This is Barry Lamb, and I'm joined with uh, Sara Lustbader. Sara, hi. Hi, how's it going? Why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? My name is Sara Lustbader. I am a former public defender, and I now write about issues of criminal justice and policy for the appeal. As a senior contributor, I'm also senior legal counsel at the Justice Collaborative. Great. So, Sarah, my question for you is, what do you remember in law school when you were first taught about mens rea? Let's see. I loved my crim law class. I I remembered actus reus and mens rea. I was like, all right, well, this makes sense. Like a lot of things in crim class, it all makes sense in theory. And then if you, like me, uh, leave law school and then become a public defender, it all kind of breaks down. As a society, we sort of like to think of ourselves as um, more focused on mens rea than we actually are. Probably everyone who's worked in criminal law has noticed that there's this sort of aspirational idea that we really only prosecute people based on what they intended because that gets closer to uh, the way you put it in the episode is like how evil they are. But you don't even without qualifying it like that, you just say like closer to their to their intent to to what they aim to do. Um, But what you see in practice is that that's just not how it works. And cases that are treated as serious are generally the cases that have the worst outcomes. So if you have a person who died, your case will go to the like to the homicide unit um, and it will be you know handled by the more experienced prosecutors. And in fact, you're probably going to need sign off from some deputy director or even uh, the DA him or herself. So like if you s- sort of sit in on trials, very few cases actually involve someone saying, I intend to do this bad thing. Here yeah. we go. I'm going to do this bad thing. And then I did it. I think that if you were really strict about reasonable doubt, you would show you would probably acquit in like almost every case because it's so hard to show actual intent. So what you're doing is asking a jury to infer intent. And I think that that process is so inexact that we can say that in practice, the whole idea of mens rea being relevant to a criminal conviction is like a little bit fallacious. What you're describing to me is that we are very much a moral luck intuition driven society. Basically, moral luck is the idea that there are all of these consequences that are unforeseeable, unforeseen, but that just happens. And somehow the assignment of blame gets, you know, like if you have two people, um, both of whom have the same mens rea, right? And one of them ends up killing somebody and the other person doesn't kill somebody. But mens rea is identical. Mm -hmm. You could even say that the circumstances around them were. It's just somehow the world intervened in such a way where one person ends up killing somebody and the other person ends up not even harming somebody, right? We are going to go with like, okay, we're going to prosecute the hell out of the person who ended up killing somebody. That's a mens, that's a, that's a, that's a um, moral luck judgment, right? That's, And it sounds to me like what you're saying is that in practice, equal mens rea does not play very much of a role in whether somebody gets the book thrown at them. Is that correct? I think for most prosecutions, that's true. And I think some of that reflects the moral outrage that comes with greater harm. And some of it comes from the fact that we as a society are just not sure about whether our criminal justice system is set up to sort of be focused on the defendant, the, the the accused, or if it's focused on the victim. Because uh, if you're focused on the victim, then the harm actually matters quite a bit. Um, I think that for, for me, I would be 
more harmed by someone who succeeded in killing me than someone who wanted to kill me. I wouldn't be happy about that. But obviously my life would change dramatically (laughs) Um, more if someone succeeded in killing me. I think that generally we're just so confused. So you'll have you'll hear the same prosecutor make completely contradictory arguments based on intent or outcome, depending on what sort of suits their case at the time. If it really is outcome based, there really shouldn't be any difference between strict liability and like intent all the way to intent. Right. If you're you're talking about same. outcome, Yes. Yes. If it were really outcome based. And and you heard this actually during the campaign when Amy Klobuchar was was questioned about a um, uh, a prosecution that she led that seems extremely questionable, if not a, a bad prosecution that actually after she left her office had to be redone because it was so flawed, the, the prosecution. And when she was asked about it during when she was still running for president, she said, well, there was like a dead girl. I was under a lot of pressure to prosecute. And I think that's how prosecutors function. Um, when there is a dead little girl, that's the outcome. They're under pressure to prosecute. And in fact, she, uh, her office ended up prosecuting successfully someone who truly may not have even been guilty at all. Um, in that case, actually, I don't think there was ever a question of intent. This, this, it was a stray bullet. So I don't think that anyone was even accused of intending to kill this person. Um, but we, we prosecute these people just the same. You know, these, these are murder charges. Do you remember having a problem as a student of law with strict liability crimes? The idea that there could be a crime that's also strict liability? Yeah, I think that it goes against probably most people's intuition. It's sort of, if you have children, for example, you want to teach them that, you know, it's, it's, I think a lot of people who have kids have had the experience of their child doing something that they clearly didn't intend to do, like knocking something over. And, and then they feel really bad about it. Uh, My kid spilled some medicine uh, the other day and he said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, And it just broke my heart because I think for most of us, it goes against our intuition morally to hold someone accountable for something that they didn't intend. Yeah. I I find um, human judgment about this to be very, very puzzling because the best of humanity and the worst of humanity comes out in this one thing, the way that we judge what are, in fact, accidents, right? So I... I see in human beings, even with respect to children, that um, response. And I also see anger (laughs) as a response at the same time, right? And I think that at a large societal scale, that's the difference in the treatment of individuals in the criminal justice system as well, right? I see people who raise children like you and I who are like, okay, that's an accident. And sometimes I catch myself doing this. Like my, my kid is a little bit older, so I've had a little bit more time. But it's like, yes, you're sorry, but that's also the fifth time you've did th- done that, <laughs> right? But it's not like any less of an accident the fifth time, actually. Well, you could raise it to a negligence standard at that point. Like, you know that if you did it this this way this many times and then you did it again, uh, that's negligence. I know we do do that, Sarah, <laughs> but what I'm trying to you know, get at is like, is that just part, is, is that a mistake? Is that like a human mistake or is that a legitimate kind of response for us? Like, I, I'm actually, ever since graduate school in philosophy, I've actually wondered about this because ignorance is one of these, or mistakes. Mistakes and ignorance are one of these interesting categories where um, 
no intent, no knowledge, um, you know, no thought to the possible bad that can occur. Uh, at the same time, there are situations in which we think people are responsible for not knowing and not intending because, you know, they should have experiences of a certain kind. And one of the things that that um, one of my philosophy professors was trying to convince us of, it was his thesis at the time. Nobody else believes it, but his thesis was that you might be responsible for not knowing, but you're not responsible for the acts that come from you not knowing. Um, so there shouldn't ever be negligent standards. And I wonder, and I, I've always thought about that. That's a really tough one. <laughs> so wait, you're not responsible. Yeah. You are responsible for not knowing, but yeah. you're not responsible for the acts that follow from you not knowing. That's right. Why? That's the idea. What's the distinction? Well, the idea is something like this, okay? You can't hold people responsible for the eternal chain of everything that can flow from like something that they've done at a certain point or a mistake that they've made at a certain point. Everybody thinks you should cut it off at some some point, right? Where we are right now, right? The coronavirus, all right? Suppose it happened like this. Somebody bought a bat, right? Or something mm-hmm. like that. Or a pangolin. The animal and- bat. <laughs> Right, right. And then six months later, 300,000 people in the world have died as a result of that thing, which we can, we might say, because people have been warning uh, individuals in China about the wildlife trade, hey, this has happened before, and it's happened two, three times before. You should know better than to be participating in wet markets, uh, eating animals like this. You did it. Right. Like one way of holding, you know, some individual responsible for this is like, okay, whatever policy made it so that 300,000 people worldwide can die, you're responsible for all of that. You pay restitution, all that stuff. Um, We don't do that. I know some people might think that's the right way to go, but we stop people. We cut it off somewhere. That kind of responsibility. Yeah, I remember that. I remember some tricky cases I read in law school about intoxication. So that's right. Intoxication is a good example. Yeah. Right. When you're intoxicated, we know bad things can happen. Right. We know the first thing that many people think about is car accidents. Right. Um, And. Some people hold that, in fact, you should just be held accountable. If you're responsible for your own intoxication, you're responsible for everything that happens afterward. And I think that that reflects more a policy judgment than it does a moral judgment, because I don't think anybody gets drunk intending um, or even knowing that they're going to crash their car. We we can understand that that's not actually a reasonable conclusion to draw about someone who ultimately did get drunk and ultimately did crash their car. However, um, we there are certain legislatures, I think most of them, um, that have decided as a policy matter, we're just going to put the burden on you to not intoxicate yourself. Um, and just we're going to say you're responsible uh, for anything that happens once you get intoxicated. It's not an excuse. You know, if you if you crash your car, you sexually assault someone um, that, in fact, we want to discourage this level of intoxication. So we're going to hold you responsible, even though we know that you couldn't have had the same kind of intent before you were intoxicated. But even with the case of intoxication, if your if your car accident uh, sets off a chain reaction car accident where 20 cars get um, crash and maybe you have 20 deaths or something like that, we still we do have some kind of line drawing principle Right. So it's not like this one individual is going to be liable for all of those things. 
Is that correct? Yeah, well, it's clear in tort law. So in tort law, you know, the standard is often foreseeability, like what was foreseeable. But I think that there's also uh, a workaround for all of this, which is that if you want to avoid the moral problem of convicting people for something that they didn't intend, and I don't even want to convict... corporate executives for things they didn't intend. I don't think anybody deserves that. You can take all of this out of the criminal system. Like, I think that the criminal system is actually probably a bad fit uh, for a lot of this stuff. So you can do away with the intent standard. Uh, you can do away with the um, threat or of, of prison time. You can just shift the burden, right? Like, you can make a negligence standard and shift the burden and say, if you want to have a corporation and make a bunch of money, it's on you to make sure that you're not polluting, that you're not dumping, that you're not doing all these things. And we've put you on notice. And if you violate these things, like, you're going to lose, I don't know, all your money. (laughs) Like, you just won't be able to do business. We'll take away your license. And that's the the cost of, of doing business. I, I think that it's in their interest to make it this all or nothing uh, thing so that they have to, to um, you know, it feels kind of good to say, oh, we went after these corporate executives and, and, and criminally. Like, don't you don't have to do that. Just don't let them have their company anymore if they're polluting. To be fair, I think we should take like almost everything out of criminal law <laughs> for various reasons. So I don't believe we should be prosecuting uh, street crime in the same way. I don't think that, that you know, uh, people who are dealing drugs should be thrown in prison at all. Um, but I just think practically speaking, you can solve a lot of the problems that are raised in this episode if you take it, if you take it out of the, the criminal sphere. OK, so can I then raise like an even uh, bigger question for you then? Because I know you like this stuff. Um the deontologists, right? Um, this is something that I hear them say, which is what criminal law is for is for retribution. That's what it's for. Uh, sometimes I hear you, Sarah, as saying, all right, given that that's what it is, let's move a lot of stuff out of it, out of that system, right? Or maybe everything. Right. Sometimes I hear you as an abolitionist. Right. Sometimes I hear you as saying we shouldn't have a criminal justice system. Then, right. What 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 are you? What like? What, how would you describe yourself? Oh man, I was scared when you said there was going to be a big question, but I didn't know how bad it would be. Um, I don't know. I do think I I think I I am pretty persuaded by the abolitionist arguments. Um, most of those are not deontological arguments. They're mostly pragmatic, probably closer to utilitarianism. And they're mostly rooted in this doesn't work. We know it doesn't work. Let's try something that seems more promising. And and then there's this like, I think, uh, another part of it that sort of tacked on, which might be closer to deontology, which is just also it's the right thing to do. You know, also, we're treating people unfairly. We've been treating them unfairly for a long time. It's not right. The way the the discrepancy in the way people are treated based on their skin color and their income, it's not right. Uh, even if it, if it weren't for the discrimination, it's not right. The way that that we have come down so hard on people and ruined their families and communities. And it, there's just a better way to do things. I don't know. I I don't have the answers deontologically, but I do think pragmatically speaking. 
abolitionism is probably yeah. a way to a better society. I will add one other thing, which is that um, it's probably not where you want to go. But well, that's fine. Yeah. when we think about moral culpability, which is what you've talked about a lot in this episode, yeah. I think that if you only focus on like negligence, recklessness, knowledge, intent, you're actually leaving something really important out, which is agency. Um, and even if you can show, and you, you point this out, that like a street dealer, you know, most people don't think that crack is legal, right? So if you're dealing crack, you probably know what you're doing isn't legal uh, in the in a different way from like a corporate executive saying, well, I just didn't know that if I transferred the money to this account and it wasn't, you know, filed in the right way, like I just didn't know that that was um, against the law. It's harder to prove that. Um, but at the same time, if you think about this stuff in terms of agency, things look different. Like how many other options did that 16-year-old on the corner have in life? Uh, what's going on at home for him versus like how many other options did that uh, big pharma exec have? Uh, maybe like he or she could have become like a doctor or something like you care about medicine anyway. Um, maybe that person had the opportunity to do to do many other things. And so the the more that you practice law, I think, or at least in my experience, the more I practiced, the more convinced I was that agency was a more relevant question than mens rea. Well, there's like a very famous case of a guy, I think he's called Mr. Oft, and he's like a law-abiding dude, and I think, I'm going to mess up the facts, he gets to his like mid-40s or something, and um, just, I think, ends up like downloading a bunch of child porn, maybe attempts to molest his stepchild, or actually maybe does um, commit some some acts uh, that are clearly illegal and, and immoral, um, and... It's shown on, and everyone's like, like, why'd you do this, Mr. Oft? And then it's shown on a brain scan that he's developed a tumor. The tumor is pressing on some um, very important part of his brain. Uh, and they remove the tumor and the behavior stops. And so there are there are sort of two basic schools of, of thinkers in this field. You know, the, some are just like, well, if you've got a decent treatment... Um, just do that. Like, why bother sort of trying this guy? We know that he didn't cause the tumor. He didn't intend to cause the tumor. And even if he did, like, that would be weird. But he didn't intend to then um, develop these um, criminal tendencies. And then there are other people, um, like a guy named Stephen Morse, uh, who I think is at UPenn. And uh, I think he's a psychiatrist and a law professor. And he would just say, well, he has the actus reus and he has the mens rea, right? Like, he was an adult. He did the thing and he intended to do the thing. And so it doesn't really matter to me what caused it. Like you can remove that tumor and that's great. But you can see how pragmatically speaking, that is a completely ineffective way to govern. Like that that's dumb. He doesn't care. <laughs> Sorry to call you dumb, Professor Morris. But like um, it it should matter to us, I think, not just about retribution. It should matter to us not just about whether people deserve the punishment that they get, but shouldn't also matter that we are creating a safer society. And obviously removing the tumor creates a safer society, even that if that takes us out of the realm of deontology and and toward like a, a Jeremy Bentham-y kind of place. That's it for our Slate Plus segment for the episode The Criminal Mind of this season of Hi-Fi Nation. 
Thanks to Chow Tu, editor of Slate Plus, and June Thomas, senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. There will be a bonus episode every week accompanying this season of Hi-Fi Nation. And I'm doing invite-only Zoom events featuring guests from this season, as well as other guests, professional philosophers, people who work in the criminal justice system. If you want to get an invitation, just go to hifination.org to find out how. We will see you next week. <laughs>